The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your two troubadours of trivia. I'm Alex Heigl. (laughs) And I'm Jordan Runtog. And Jordan... Today we're talking about one of the most famous left turns in American music, the record that proved that Bruce Springsteen was more than the hyperverbal head of a stadium-filling rock band, and it also sent music journalists scrambling for synonyms for Stark <laughs> for decades. Uh, that's right, we are talking about Nebraska. Uh, the record turned 40 this year, and its legacy as the text for dozens of home-recorded DIY projects and a hipster-approved Springsteen record has only grown. As I, I, I love this record so much. It's my favorite Springsteen, bar none. You know, obviously, Born to Run is the, maybe the most realized, and, and there's a lot to love on Darkness, I think, as well. Um, yeah, this record is just so... It's just got that, it's not, he's not doing his chesty bleat thing. He's not doing his yarling. He doesn't have, you know, God rest his soul, but Clarence Clemens isn't isn't in here honking away in every single nook and cranny possible. It doesn't have the stunning competence of Max Weinberg on the skins. <laughs> it's just my favorite Bruce Springsteen record. I mean, I growing up in Pennsylvania, you know, I... And being a punk kid, I uh, had the inherited scorn that you're supposed to have towards Bruce. Uh, and then in like my 20s, I started going back and listening to these records. And I was like, oh, no, the man is a phenomenal songwriter. The bands are great. Um, the, the, the E Street Band is great, although, you know, he kicked out Vinny. Well, Vinny, well, never mind. I'm not going to get into the personnel of the E Street Band. Um, yet. Yeah, not yet. But yeah, I mean, this is called the Springsteen record that you give to people who don't like Springsteen, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. 
And I can definitely understand all the reasons why you like it. Like intellectually, I completely get it. The intimacy, the trust that Bruce almost seems to be placing in listeners to hear what he has to tell you in this very stripped down way. But I need to be in a really specific mindset to (laughs) enjoy that kind of music. So I tend to live over on E Street where my house is fenced off with the wall of sound. Um, Nebraska was described by author David Burke as Bruce's heart of darkness, which (laughs) right away, I can understand why that would be your favorite Bruce Springsteen album. I just love the overblown, rhapsodic, born to run type stuff. I mean, for me, it's Nebraska's a film noir and born to run as a Busby Berkeley musical number. (laughs) It's just more my vibe. Yeah. I mean, it's funny talking about Bruce because I just feel woefully unqualified. And that's one of the weird things about talking about Bruce. It's like being a Dylan fan or a dead fan or a fish fan. I own maybe 10 Bruce Springsteen albums plus a couple greatest hits compilations. If it were any other artist, that would be enough for me to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a really big fan. Mm-hmm. But in the case of Bruce Springsteen, that's not true at all. Like real Bruce Springsteen fans are a breed apart. They see his shows more often than most people get haircuts. <laughs> they have a special shelving unit for all their Bruce tapes. I know several people who have gone on Bruce Springsteen pilgrimages to Asbury Park, and I have a very dear friend who had a Bruce Springsteen-themed wedding, and their marriage photos are recreating the cover of Born to Run. So I am not at this level, nor do I claim to be. I feel it's a very important disclaimer at the top of this episode. But you don't have to be for Nebraska. I mean, and that's what, like, you Mm -hmm. know... I was talking about this with Lo in the car because we had on Born to Run. She was like, I don't think this is for me. And I was like, this is what being a teenager. Did she, was she not familiar with it? No, I mean, she'd heard it, but she was just like, I just don't get this in the same way that like you glom onto it. And it's like, for me, like E Street Band Bruce is like being a teenager. Like yes, all of your, exactly. all of your feelings are these big widescreen blown yeah. out chest beating sentiments it's us against them we're getting out of town like it's yeah that's what being teenagers like nebraska is the cold hard come down of adult your, yeah being an adult where it's like cast out into the working world everything there's no jobs yep, everything your high failed. school girlfriend left you and that's what's oh, great yeah. that's what i love about what where this record sits in his career because it is very much him as a person coming to grips with the two big things of adulthood which are no money and failing to your career, failing to live up to its expectations and depression. <laughs> and those are like, that's where he was in his life at this point. He was like, we'll talk about, we had gotten to therapy. We'll talk about, he was reading yeah. Howard Zinn and realizing that capitalism is a disgusting lie. And like, that's, this is the record that came out of it. And I couldn't love it anymore. I get that. I mean, I guess it's the whole sense of escapism versus a reflection of wherever you are at at that moment. Like, I love the optimism of Born to Run. I just yeah. think, like you said, it's it's rhapsodic teenage poetry. Mm-hmm. It's the oral equivalent of falling in love for the first time. Yeah. And the sounds are just all-encompassing and energetic, and the lyrics are just painfully earnest, yet totally firm in their convictions. I remember I had an English teacher who once told me, you know, you write about emotions as if you're the first person to ever feel them. And I think he meant it as an insult. In fact, I know he meant it as an insult, but I wore that as a badge of honor. Yeah. I have a funny feeling that Bruce would too. Um, Sure, some of his Born to Run era lyrics are melodramatic and a little embarrassing. They're nothing compared to the, dude, we were, I mean, because we had the greatest hits on and, um, you know how it starts with Asbury Park, and you forget how some of those early Dylanism, Wet Leg Willie and Jimmy John Janie and Rat Trap Cadillac 
zip zap zubop like shut the I fuck mean, he, up bruce even wrap your legs around these velvet rooms and strap your hands across my yeah, engines that's, that's pretty cringy but you know it's all about being greater and being bigger and i just i love that about him and i miss that spirit on nebraska i mean even just using the car as a metaphor on born to run it represents escape you know pull out of here to win on nebraska cars are all about isolation and class restriction and even just look at the covers on born to run it's a black and white portrait of camaraderie with bruce draped over clarence's shoulders and on nebraska it's just the frigid open road with not a soul in sight i'm gonna quote one of my favorite brooklyn jersey punk bands the world inferno friendship society um they have a song about paul robeson and the line is joy beats oppression but oppression will make you pay because our joy is fleeting, but oppression is here to stay. And that <laughs> is to me, the Bruce dichotomy. Like, yeah, you get all this hope and you can get all this joy out of it. And you can go to the four hour concert and feel like you can punch through steel. But at the end of the day, Nebraska is real life. Everything. Nebraska is not a vacation. Nebraska is real life. Born to run is the vacation, you know? So that's why I love it, and that's why I love that we're we're getting into it. We're chopping it up. Well, from the record's deep and dark list of inspirations, drawing from Southern Gothic to Howard Zinn to Springsteen's perverse insistence on putting out what was essentially his demo tape, unaltered as the record, to the obsessive hunt by fans for the full band version of this record that supposedly exists somewhere, here's everything you didn't know about Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. In the early 1980s, Bruce Springsteen was at a crossroads. <laughs> there it is. Uh, uh, the header for this one is Sawyer's standing on her front porch. <laughs> His like southern accent he puts on for this is so good. In 1975, Born to Run had launched him to worldwide fame. Uh, record that merges the rambling Dylanisms of the first records with the E Street Band with a maximalist vision of stadium rock by way of Phil Spector. How you like that for some f***ing music critic overdrive? That's everything I love. <laughs> a protracted battle with his manager, Mike Apple, kept him out of the studio for a year, during which time he kept the band on the road, and it was writing, gathering material for his next two records, Darkness on the Edge of Town and The River. Both of those records edge towards a slightly darker vision of American life than the wide-eyed teenage romanticism of Born to Run. Darkness takes that quite literally. Uh, and the river has, pound for pound, more than Nebraska, for my money, the saddest Bruce Springsteen song. That title cut, yeah. my God, that is like half the dudes my dad went to high school with in Pittsburgh. <laughs> that is a sad that line in that song, uh, I mean, we could talk about some of the best lyrics on the on Nebraska, but the uh, the line in the river when he says, "Is a dream a lie if it don't come true, or is it something worse?" <sighs> People write Bruce off as a lightweight man, but he will gut you. Yeah, Bruce was talking to Rolling Stone in 1984. I think that's the cover where he's on like a frigid lake ice skating. Yes, yes, it which is. really <laughs> just fits Kurt this Loder. whole aesthetic. Interviewed perfectly. by Kurt Loader. Oh, that's right. So he, he told Kurt Loder, I want you to picture that he's telling this to Kurt Loder. That's very important for this anecdote. Can, can you do a Bruce Springsteen accent? No, or, no, I no? Try. Okay, well, I'll just read this then. He said, I guess in Born to Run, there's that searching thing. That record to me is like religiously based in a funny kind of way. That searching and faith and the idea of hope. 
And then on Darkness on the Edge of Town, it was kind of like a collision that happens between this guy and the real world. He ends up very alone and real stripped down. Then on the river, there was always that thing of the guy attempting to come back to find some sort of community. It had more songs about relationships, people trying to find some sort of consolation, some sort of comfort in each other. Before the river, there's almost no songs about relationships. Very few. Then on Nebraska, I don't know what happened on that one. <laughs> that kind of came out of the blue. Uh, darkness is obviously quite literal in its material. And the river, as you mentioned, has one of the saddest Bruce Springsteen songs ever, the title track. But that would all come to the fore on Nebraska, which takes its own title track from one of the most infamous road trips in American history and an iconic film director's take on it. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who aren't true crime dorks, in 1958, Charles Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, fled across Nebraska and into Wyoming on a murder spree that claimed six lives. This was after Starkweather killed Fugate's stepfather, Marion Bartlett, her mother, Velda, her younger half-sister, Betty Jean, and a family friend. Fugate became the youngest female in the United States history to have been tried and convicted of first-degree murder. And Starkweather was sentenced to death and executed in the electric chair in June 1959. So in 1973, Terrence Malick, in his directorial debut, gives us Badlands, which is loosely based on that spree, starring Martin Sheen as Starkweather and Sissy Spacek as Carol Ann, released to widespread critical hosannas. And um, yeah, I don't know. Do, do you are you a Malick guy? Have you seen this? No, I've never seen this. Yeah, I mean it's beautiful. It's it's um, widescreen panoramic visions of of the middle of the country and then uh you know punctuated by bursts of violence <laughs> so picturing like more violent last picture show basically kind of yeah yeah <laughs> i was living in a place called colt's neck new jersey and i remember i saw badlands and i read this book about them carol and it just seemed to be a mood that i was in at the time I was renting a house on this reservoir, and I didn't go out much, and for some reason, I just started to write. This is in that Rolling Stone interview. I wrote Nebraska, all those songs, in a couple of months. I was interested in writing kind of smaller than I had been, writing with just detail, which I kind of began to do on the river. I guess my influences at the time were the movie, and these stories I was reading by Flannery O'Connor. She's just incredible. Are you a Flannery O'Connor guy? No, I'm I'm striking out. This episode is very much your stuff. Oh, I love I Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. Southern Gothic, baby. Nom, 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 nom. Give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> More than a few critics have cited the closing lines of Nebraska, the title track. They wanted to know why I did what I did. Well, sir, I guess there's just a meanness in this world. Uh, they cited its similarity to the closing line of Flannery O'Connor's widely anthologized short story a good man is hard to find in which a murderer says it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the last few minutes you got left at the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him no pleasure but meanness wow yeah yeah <laughs> see i don't like living in this world that's that's part of the because this is the real world i want baby. my american graffiti yeah of born to run yeah no this is the real world this is life um, the line in that song, I can't say I'm sorry for the things that we done, at least for a little while, sir, me and her, we had us some fun, echoes a letter from prison that Starkweather wrote to his parents, uh, which reads, actually, but dad, I'm not real sorry for what I did, because for the first time, me and Carol have had more fun. So that's track one. <laughs> 
Jesus Christ. Oh, I love it. Um, part of the reason that we got Nebraska was that Springsteen had decided that spending time in the studio writing was a waste of money. He would go yeah, in without sure stuff. Is. Yeah, absolutely. But that's what a lot of these guys used to do. Paul Simon would yeah, famously Simon. go in just unprepared. Um, so this time he was like going to write a bunch of uh, ahead of time. He sent his guitar tech, Mike Batlan, out and was like, get me some stuff I can use to record at home. And uh, so he told Rolling Stone, I got a little four-track cassette machine, and I said, I'm going to record these songs, and if they sound good with just me doing them, then I'll teach them to the band. I could sing and play the guitar, and then I had two tracks to do something else, like overdub a guitar or add a harmony. It was just going to be a demo. Then I had a little echoplex that I mixed through, and that was it. And that was the tape that became the record. It's amazing that it got there because I was carrying that cassette around with me in my pocket without a case for a couple of weeks, <laughs> just dragging it around. But he said, you know, when they started taking them to the band, the chemistry wasn't there. Uh, he told this Irish magazine, um, Hot Press, the songs had a lot of detail so that when the band started to wail away into it, the characters got lost. Like Johnny 99. I thought, oh, that'd be great if we could do a rock version. But when you did that, the song disappeared. A lot of its content and style in the treatment of it, it needed that kind of really austere, echoey sound. Just one guitar, one guy telling his story. Ironically, that is one of the Nebraska songs that is played most live, and he plays it as a full yeah. full band rock and roll song. I mean, Nebraska's like, I mean, it's a stupid analogy, but like a pen and ink drawing, you mm -hmm. know? Like, yeah. It's like a Thurber drawing versus some... <laughs> J.M.W. You know, Turner. Surah pointism. Oh, like, sure. Yeah. How many art references can we cram into this guy? I can't believe I just said pointillism in an episode about Nebraska. <laughs> Uh, the demo recording sessions that produced this album covered several days, but uh, Springsteen fans have identified January 3rd, 1982 as the quote-unquote legendary night when 15 tracks were demoed by the aforementioned guitar tech Mike Batlin. Um, one influence, this is one of the things I love about Bruce, is that he he has his weird little fixations that he loves, and he has, he, he will find them out of nowhere. A big influence on at least one track on this record is suicide who are very early days new york city punk to the point where they were all older than that initial generation of punk bands and they're uh just like drum machines and keyboards and these kind of sp uh, sparse uh stark unrelenting songs uh punctuated by alan vega who is um sort of doing if elvis was starring in the exorcist <laughs> um <laughs> And Springsteen loved them. Um, he loved this track in particular, Frankie Teardrop. And apparently he said at one point, if Elvis came back from the dead, I think he would sound like Alan Vega. So on the Amazing. on the track State Trooper, you know, he's it's like it's that ching 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 just a real quiet riff. And then you just hear him scream out of nowhere towards the end of it. That's a suicide rip. But it's just so funny. I just love the fact that he you know, he was like, oh, these guys who play it like CBGB, like, I'm into that. I'm into that band. I'm going to take that as a reference. Guy just loves music. I respect it. Bruce sent a version of this demo tape to his manager, John Landau, with a note that read in part, I got a lot of ideas, but I'm not exactly sure where I'm going, which I love. <laughs> uh, and he elaborated on the sentiment in his 2016 memoir, Born the Run, saying, I had no conscious political agenda or social theme. I was after a feeling, a tone that felt like the world I'd known and still carried inside me. That's horse. Um, <laughs> I, 
Go on. I he clearly had a, an agenda. He clearly had a theme, and I'll tell you why. Uh, that's hagiography. If he wants to rewrite history, that's his. That's that's up to Bruce, but. I'll explain why I don't agree with him later. Uh, he brought this, all these songs to the studio and worked with the E Street Band in April of 82 on full band versions. These are commonly referred to as the Electric Nebraska Sessions, which is, well, that's pretty good. Electric Nebraska sounds like a sex position. Uh, he and manager John Lando actually had veto power over which songs would make the cut, as rightly they those two guys would. And so everything that stayed on Nebraska they felt was too personal and raw to give the full E Street Band treatment. And they were the only people they had full power over this. So I think Max has been like, Max has taught, you'll, you'll mention this in a second, but Max has been like, oh, we had great versions of those songs, but they just didn't come out. This is what's wild. I talked about this earlier. Born in the USA comes out in 1984. That record has 12 tracks on it. Eight of those came out of the Nebraska writing sessions. Title track, Downbound Train, Cover Me, I'm On Fire, Dark Horse Candidate for Top 5 Springsteen Song, Glory Days, also, Darlington County, Working on the Highway, I'm Going Down, I love I'm Going Down. Um, yeah. I have an unpopular opinion. Go ahead. I'm On Fire to me sounds like a Chris Isaac song. Yeah, but 10 years before Chris Isaac was doing it. Mm, a couple years before. Still. Chris Isaac, that putts. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't dream of this gra this level of gravitas. Uh, it is unlikely that we will ever hear... Well, actually, I don't know. If he's gearing up to sell all of his masters, that'll come out someday. Isn't that the isn't that the scuttlebutt? Yeah. Oh, man. I talked to... Uh, I interviewed Stephen Van Zant the day that it was announced that he was selling his masters yeah. for like... But, I mean, the, the announcement came like the afternoon. I talked to him in the morning and he seemed like kind of down and weird. And uh, and I couldn't figure out why. He seemed like seemed like a man questioning his life choices. And then later <laughs> that afternoon, after the call, I was like, "Oh yeah, Bruce Springsteen gets what? Like Five, quarter of yeah. a billion dollars, half a billion, something like that." So yeah, I guess whoever owns them may put this out. But uh, John Landau, as of 2006, was saying that the release is unlikely. He said the right version of Nebraska came out. Well, he would say that because it was his decision. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, fans have been dying to hear the the so-called Electric Nebraska. Uh, and it's unclear exactly how much has been finished of it. But Max Weinberg has said that the album does exist. And he's quoted as saying, I think he's talking to Rolling Stone, the E Street Band actually did record all of Nebraska and it was killing. It was all very hard-edged. As great as it was, it wasn't what Bruce wanted to release. All those songs are in the can somewhere. And I think most of the tracks from those sessions have been released either on the Nebraska album, Born on the USA, or as standalone singles or part of a compilation album. But I think there are nine titles from that marathon session that are still unreleased to this day. So hopefully at least those see the light of day. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. 
AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. So before we even get in further into the songs, we have to talk about the technical side of Nebraska, and hopefully we'll keep this from getting a little too uh, Rick Beato, uh, as I say every time I start talking about music theory in the show, Beato. Um, talking to Rolling Stone, Springsteen said, technically it was difficult to get it on a disc. The stuff was recorded so strangely, the needle would read a lot of distortion and wouldn't track in the wax. We almost had to release it as a cassette. So that is extremely broad strokes. Let us paint a finer picture. The boss used the Teak Tascam 144 Porter Studio, retail price at the time, a shade over a grand, uh, along with a pair of Shure SM57s, which are the microphone that roughly 90 to 99% of small to mid-sized venues use on guitar amps. It's absolutely one of the workhorse mics that is in every venue and recording studio in the world. Uh, and he used two of them and this Tascam to record the demos that would become Nebraska. And then they mixed them onto a Panasonic boombox because you record them onto the uh, the four-track machine. And then I think what they did was if they hadn't already put the Echoplex in the signal chain, they would have put it on those tracks before they bounce, as they bounced it over to the the Panasonic. 
Yeah, it's worth noting that this Tascam 4-track machine was the first commercially available piece of equipment to use a standard cassette tape that you could just buy at a drugstore mm -hmm. for multi-track recording. And this was pretty revolutionary. You could make a record in your bedroom that could be released on Columbia. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, Paul McCartney often gets, you know, the vast majority of the praise for putting out his McCartney album in 1970 that he did at home. But he had trucked in, like proper yeah that was done to two inch tape with like neve consoles yeah come on well it wasn't neve but he was direct into the the studer four track okay. but he had like because abbey road the studio where the beatles recorded was like almost in sight of his house uh -huh. he lived right down the road so he got all his stuff just trucked in so yeah so this is very different this is like small portable easy to use very revolutionary, and as we'll talk about later, just the fact that someone as big as Bruce Springsteen could make an album on this really legitimized it in the eyes of just a whole generation of people who wanted to make albums on the cheap. Yeah, I mean, um, or the early Mountain Goat stuff, when it was just John Darnielle, uh, he was recording everything uh, the second he wrote it to the Panasonic RX FT500 boombox. Apparently, it had a condenser mic on it. But it, the condenser mic didn't filter out the sound of the gear of the tape turning. So like all of those early Mountain Goat songs, they have these incredible songs with these heartrending lyrics and just beautiful songwriting. But you just hear in the background. Um, the other big famous one is the Bon Iver's, uh breakthrough for Emma forever ago. Um, there's the other recorded in isolation magnum opus. He made it as a family's uh hunting cabin in uh wisconsin wisconsin is that right jamie can we pull up the location of bonavere's cabin um <laughs> spring scenes longtime engineer toby scott recalled that uh bruce had enlisted mike batland go find me this little tape machine but i have to be able to do overdubs on it and so they brought also brought in uh the echoplex which is a tape delay machine you know, tape delay, loosely speaking, is if you're recording one, you're recording an audio signal onto a length of tape, you get delay by sending that signal to another tape head that you can set to uh, uh, run slower. And that creates an echo effect. And early rockabilly, um, at shorter, lower settings, you get what's called a slapback delay, which is an extremely quick second signal. And that is the vocal sound that you hear in a lot of the early sun Records stuff um heartbreak hotel is probably the best known example so with the echoplex that is when you get i mean he was using it to kind of widen things out it you can make home demos sound a little bit more spacious with it but for my money it's between that and the reverb that they add on it that makes it sound like it harkens back to like those really hmm. early days of rock and roll man i mean that there's that creepy version of elvis doing uh blue moon that's like yeah. the famous one where he's he's doing like he's doing the falsetto stuff. That sounds like Nebraska to me because it's just slapback delay and like spring plate studio reverb. I just love that because I mean I know it creates such a, a vibe and an atmosphere, but that's also just like the classic trick that everyone does to make poorly recorded songs sound <laughs> yeah. good. Just throw some reverb on it. So I just think it's great that Bruce isn't above that either. Yeah. It's why you sound good singing in the shower. Yeah. Um, not you. I mean, you, the, the universal you. I'm sure you sound great singing anywhere, Jordan. I sound great anywhere, yeah. <laughs> this, this is my instrument. <laughs> um, Some Bobby Darren tracks and I'm ready to go. Uh, complicating things. Um, Scott told... That's what I do best. Oh, oh, I thought you were still talking about me. 
<laughs> no, this is Toby Scott. Apparently, he actually talked to Tascam about this whole situation. Like, I found this on the Tascam website. Um, he says, it seems that during the recording process, Mike, the roadie, the guitar tech, had never really figured out what that little round knob next to the transport controls was and had left it at around the two o'clock position. So they ended up recording everything with the various speed set fast. Then he thought, well, maybe it shouldn't be in that position. So he turned it back down to 12 o'clock from mix down. What that all means is that the songs were recorded at one tape speed and mixed at another. <laughs> so essentially when you're record, if the very speed control is what the Beatles use on a lot of stuff. Um, it's how they pitched, um, isn't how they pitched uh, Paul's voice up to make him sound younger for when when I'm sixty four. When I'm sixty four, yeah, yeah. Um, and you can do it on a obviously you can do it on a little Porta studio, but you have to keep that setting consistent. You cannot record at one speed and then mix down at another because uh, that is going to create problems. <laughs> but that wasn't even the biggest problem that they had with the mixing process. Jordan, take us away. Yes, there was an even bigger problem. So Bruce had this little canoe that he liked to go out on this little branch of the river near his house. And on one of those trips in his canoe, he brought the boombox with him. And this boombox fell in the water. And it <laughs> sank in the mud. And later that day when the tide went out, he retrieved it from the soggy riverbed. <laughs> it's the kick of a, of a forlorn seasonal <laughs> affective disorder ravaged Bruce Springsteen walking through a muddy creek bed to recover his soggy Panasonic boombox from the mud. He grabbed it, brought it back to the house, hosed off the mud, and left it on the porch, assuming that it was it was it was dead. It was gone. It was he's just gonna throw it away. Uh, about a week later, he was apparently sitting on the porch reading the Sunday paper, and the boombox all of a sudden it, it rises from the dead. It comes back <laughs> to life. It starts playing whatever the hell he was listening to. Probably scares the hell out of him. So that's Scott's version. But in the Peter Ames Carlin biography, there's a slightly different version. The thing actually came back to life in the middle of the night while Bruce was on the couch yeah. watching TV. So either way, probably scared the hell out of him. I like the middle of the night one. It's a little more sinister. He's like sitting there watching. I think another another influence on this record that he liked was uh, Night of the Hunter, uh, the Robert Mitchum movie uh, where Spike Lee got the oh. good and evil thing from. Yeah, I like the idea of Bruce sitting watching Night of the Hunter on TV, like in the middle of the night, and the boombox next to him crackles to life. <laughs> I mean, the thing that blows my mind is that Bruce was just walking around with these cassettes in his pocket. His engineer Toby Scott would say Bruce had walked around with the only copy of these mixes in the front pocket of his jeans jacket this whole time, and here was the tape he was holding up in the studio, saying, "There's just something about the atmosphere on this tape." can we just master off this? <laughs> and I said, yes, Bruce, we could. I'm not sure you'll like it, but we could. Yeah. The other thing that uh, Toby Scott, he's like, yeah, you know, I don't think Bruce really had any idea about cleaning tape heads. <laughs> so <laughs> just the idea that this demo tape is coated in schmutz. So much gunk. Um, so he ended up copying the cassette to a piece of two inch tape before taking it to four or five of the biggest mastering facilities on the East coast. At which point, as Bruce explained, they couldn't cut a lacquer disc. When you're pressing vinyl, you have to, the master disc that all of the subsequent records are pressed from is called the lacquer disc. And they were unable to get the signal off of this tape hot enough so that they could cut a lacquer from it. Um, he said they went to Bob Ludwig, Steve Markison at Precision, Sterling Sound, CBS, 
Finally, they ended up with Atlantic in New York, and Dennis King tried one time and also couldn't get it on the disc. So we had him try a different technique, putting it onto disc at a much lower level, and that seemed to work. In the end, we ended up having Bob Ludwig use his EQ and his mastering facility, but with Dennis's mastering parameters, and that's the master we ended up using. There are four or five mastering people credited on this record, which is more than the amount of people who mixed it and recorded it. <laughs> wrote it. <laughs> wrote it. Yeah. Um, the producer Chuck Pluck in, uh, in the Carlin bio, he says, I remember thinking the record would never get onto the disc. I was sitting around in a hotel room crying. It was so frustrating. <laughs> uh. Thankfully, the record's cover art was a little easier. It was shot by David Michael Kennedy actually a few years earlier in 1975 on a cross-country trip of his own. He worked in advertising in New York, but he was tired of it, so he took some time off to go on this cross-country road trip with his brother and two friends. And while he was in Nebraska, a snowstorm hit, and they had to pull over on the side of the road for hours. And it was during this uh, enforced pit stop on their trip (laughs) that Kennedy shot this famous photo right through the pickup truck's windshield forged in the crucible of terror yeah (laughs) all great art emerges (laughs) and he talked about it at an event at the morrison gallery in i think in new york in 2018 said this picture was in my studio and andrea klein who was one of the art directors at sony that worked with bruce saw it and she thought it would be great for the nebraska cover and showed it to bruce bruce loved it and wanted to use it i wonder if she knew at the time that it was actually taken in nebraska like it's very yeah evocative it almost just seems like a happy a happy accident if you will well she our our friend bob she art directed this in and born in the usa as well because i every time i was googling her it was just all about the bruce ass shot um (laughs) did i tell you my well i may cut this did i tell you my other bruce springsteen story i know during the uh the new radicals episode i told you one of them i don't know i don't think there's another one oh i have a uh a really good friend of mine was working at the Ralph Lauren RRL store in Soho. And that RRL is like sells the kind of things that like, you know, you'd expect Bruce Springsteen to wear like vintage aviators yeah. and like distressed leather jackets and stuff. And Bruce would come into the store often enough that like, it was not that weird to actually see him in there anymore. Like, you know, so, Hey Bruce, how you doing? And so my friend, uh, he was doing long distance with his girlfriend up in Boston and they'd had some big fight and he gets on the first bus back to New York that he can. It's like the middle of the night bus. And he gets back into New York at like dawn and he's too depressed to go back to his apartment and like face, you know, just his empty room. So he goes in to the double RL store to just try to get ahead on work and get his mind off of stuff. And he's like doing inventory and putting things out on shelves and stuff. And there's a little knock on the door and he turns and it's Bruce. I guess he was just like, goes for early. A lot of celebrities, Bowie used to do this too, go on early morning walks before like people are out. Cause it's kind of the only private time they have to be like normal in the city. So there was a light on in one of his favorite stores, knocked on the door. My friend let him in. And Bruce is walking around, kind of rifling through the old, you know, switchblades and <laughs> vintage World War One boots and all that kind of stuff. And looks at my friend, looks at him long and hard and goes, hey, man, what's up? You seem kind of bummed. And my friend's like, you know, he's not going to bother Bruce Springsteen with his love life trauma. So, no, it's fine. I'm fine. And Bruce's just like, no. What's the deal? And he just gets on his haunches, you know, on one of those little ottomans they have for you to try on <laughs> shoes. But like, what's 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 rap about it? And 
they talked for like half hour, 45 minutes, just like life and love and experiences. And it's this really great conversation. And Bruce buys a ton of clothes so that my buddy can get the commission for it. And as he's walking out, he's getting to the door, his hands on the door. And my friend calls after him, hey, Bruce, so what do I do? And Bruce, sun rays shining through the store window, turns, looks over his shoulder, just like the shot on Born in the USA, I imagine, looks over his shoulder and just goes, go to her. Of Puts course. his aviators on, walks out the door, and he's gone. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen. How do you lose with a guy like that, man? I, it's just like the scene from High Fidelity. I love it yeah, so much. Yeah, exactly. I got to, well, now, anyway. I gotta tell, now I got to tell mine. No, when I saw him in Jersey, he saw this little girl who had a, like a sign in the, in like one of the first couple rows and, and you know, they've got that big ramp that goes down in the audience. So oh, yeah. they're, uh, did I already tell this on this podcast? No, I don't okay. think I've never heard this. And so he goes down this ramp and the band is, I forget what they were doing. I think it was something off the rising actually. And the band is just kind of like vamping. Cause they're like, okay, Bruce is off in the crowd. <laughs> like they know what to do. Uh-huh. Uh, and so he hops down in the crowd grabs this little girl, walks back up on the stage with her. She's like standing on the, this is at the Meadowlands. <laughs> She's uh standing on the stage with him and the rest of the E Street band. He bends down and like whispers in her ear and then he like gestures to her and she turns around and goes, play it E Street band and they, <laughs> and they kick into the chorus and he puts her on his shoulder and marches her back down into the crowd. It's like there's no, the, it, Son of a bitch! There's no losing to this man. He will. He ah, oh, it's incredible. I started crying telling that anecdote earlier today when I was explaining Bruce to my wife. <laughs> Everyone has a Bruce Springsteen is the greatest human being story. I feel like, and I'm just like, I'm, man, thank you for sharing yours. You know, if you want to have your faith restored in rock and roll, he's the guy to do it. See him live. I. Oh, it's insane. I wasn't ambivalent to him, but I was just like, oh, yeah, cool. He's a rock legend. But seeing him live at a fairly late age, like I was four, in like yeah, maybe mid-20s. Hours. Well, no, for me, I I just I had no idea. One of the most amazing concerts I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And then I saw him again, and it was also one of the most. I mean, the consistency of it is incredible. Yeah, I mean, so amazing. And for anyone who hasn't seen him and is somehow able to i know it's incredibly hard now with yeah. the ticket lotteries and the prices and everything but you know try <laughs> that's what bruce would want you to do steal a car i have a car steal a car <laughs> uh that's a little kids in the hall reference for you um i actually think that opening the record with nebraska is sort of a faint on bruce's part because the rest of this record uh while it is still personal also is more concerned, I would say, probably with the exception of Born in the USA, maybe the most topical Springsteen record, other than Rising, which has like, you know, how the whole 9-11 connection, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Despite his post-Born in the USA reputation as a chronicler of the runaway American dream, as he says, Springsteen had not been much of a political artist prior to this album with his involvement in 1979's no nukes anti-nuclear power concert oh, yeah. and album basically being his first big outspoken political act. And, uh, by his own admission, he says there wasn't any kind of political consciousness down in freehold, New Jersey, his hometown in the late sixties. But at some point he read, uh, Howard Zinn's a people's history of the United States. Um, and I actually got that from Zinn's New York times obit. They uh they quoted they quoted Bruce as saying the book was a big influence on Nebraska. 
and this starts to sow the seeds of political brews. Broad strokes. The timing in the country is this. Beginning in January 1980, the increasing federal funds rate made credit more difficult to obtain for car and home loans, which in turn caused severe contractions in manufacturing and housing because both of those markets hinge on how easily people can get credit. You can't get credit to buy a car. You can't get credit to buy a house. Cars are not going to be made. Houses are not going to be built. The manufacturing industry lost 1.1 million jobs. The automotive industry, still reeling after the gas crisis and the poor sales of the fallout from that in 1979, shed fully a third of its jobs. Construction lost 300,000. So this is this is sensing a Springsteenian theme developing here. Going into 1981, the Fed predicted little or no economic growth as interest rates continued rising in an attempt to reduce inflation, which is how they combat inflation. They rise. It's horse. It's all a deck. It's all a house of cards. But again, without people to get car and home loans, job loss picked back up. Ninety percent of all job losses in 1982 were from manufacturing. Construction. Uh, shed a total of 385,000 jobs from July of 1981 through December of 1982. The unemployment rate for auto workers rose from just 3.8% in early 1978 to 24% by the end of 1982. Construction worker unemployment peaked 22% during the same time. So it is no surprise that Nebraska is packed with what a bad economy can do. A closed-down auto plant in Mawa, New Jersey, sends someone spiraling into murder in Johnny 99. Lack of jobs lead to criminal moonlighting in Atlantic City. Grain prices cause people to lose the family farm in Highway Patrolman. The lyric, I got debts no honest man can pay, is actually repeated twice on the record, once in Atlantic City and again on Johnny 99. And incidentally, there actually was a Ford auto plant in Mawa, which when it opened in 1955 was the largest in the country at 177 acres. Its truck division closed during the first wave of the recession in 1979, a month after Ford closed five other plants across the nation with over 11,000 workers put out of work. Their car division followed the year after. So that is the milieu (laughs) into which Bruce is writing these songs. Yeah, for me, the crucial line is from Johnny 99. Now, I ain't saying that makes me an innocent man, but it was more than all this that put a gun in my hand. I mean, all those economic factors you just mentioned, that that sums it up right there. The general sense at the time was that the government had turned its back on its moral responsibility to the have-nots of America. And another figure on Bruce's mind in this period, who we should probably mention, is Woody Guthrie. Towards the end of the River Tour, just after the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, Bruce started reading Joe Klein's biography of Woody Guthrie and talked a lot about what he stood for and what Woody taught him about this country. And during one gig around this time, Bruce said that the next song he was singing was not a song for school children to sing. This song is a fight song. And then he launched into This Land is Your Land, which is sort of a sarcastic flip side to God bless America, criticizing the notion of private property explicitly written as a a rejoinder. But it's probably second to Bruce's own track born in the USA as like the most misunderstood, you know, satire that people don't realize is a satire and just embrace the flag waving. Yay. America song. And really, it's possible to draw a line directly between Born in the USA, which is written, as we said, in the same Nebraska time period, and This Land is Your Land, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And writing for the site Pop Matters in 2012, the writer Bill C. says, What Springsteen gleaned from the songs of Woody Guthrie, the writings of Flannery O'Connor and John Steinbeck and filmmakers like John Ford, John Huston, and Terrence Malick, was a humanity and a curiosity about why certain people lose connection with themselves, their families, their community, and their government. And what then happens when that kind of alienation infiltrates the subconscious? Further, the profound effect that it has on the people that love those alienated and disconnected souls. Yeah, and this is why I don't necessarily agree with what he said in Born to Run. I mean, he can say that he didn't have a political agenda going into this. And, you know, maybe he didn't in as many words. But you can't tell me that you read Woody Guthrie's autobiography. You read the people's history of the United States. You read what's going on in the auto manufacturing industry. And then you say, I did not, I have... I'm not writing political songs like, come on, come on, Bruce. Uh, don't lie to us. You owe us that much. <laughs> yeah. He told Rolling Stone that Nebraska was about that American isolation. What happens to people when they're alienated from their friends and their community and their government and their job? Because those are the things that keep you sane, that give meaning to life in some fashion. And if they slip away, and you start to exist in some void where the basic constraints of society are a joke, then life becomes kind of a joke. Mm. There's another big theme on Nebraska, a much more personal one, and that's Bruce's own family. He wrote in his book, Songs, The songs on Nebraska connected to my childhood more than any record I'd made. The tone of the music was directly linked to what I remembered of my early youth. You mentioned earlier about this Elvisy slapback echo. We lived with my grandparents until I was six. Thinking through these songs, I went back and recalled what that time felt like, particularly in my grandmother's house. And part of this was being in his early 30s, and he was at the aforementioned crossroads <laughs> we talked about at the top of the episode. In Peter Ames Carlin's biography, Bruce, Bruce is quoted as saying, It was definitely a closing to a certain earlier section of my life, the initial section of the traveling and touring in those early records. There was more contemplation. I was 30 or 31, and something turned me back around towards my early childhood. That moved me into Nebraska. And Springsteen explained to Carlin that he found himself driving through the streets of his hometown of Freehold late at night, visiting the old houses where he once lived. And I think this became like kind of a habit for mm -hmm. a while. Accordingly, almost every character heard on Nebraska who isn't at the end of their tether owing to economic reasons is in the same place because of emotional or existential reasons. And the phrase deliver me from nowhere is one of the most repeated lyrics on the record. Yeah. And you mentioned that this be this. He's talked a lot about this. It's sounds it's actually like one of the sadder things that I can imagine in his life of just like. Still being a millionaire and just like something gets gets you up to just drive around your old neighborhood late at night. Ugh. That's I mean, I do that now. I can only imagine if I had his level of success, I probably would feel more compelled to do that. To try to like rationalize the person that you are now with the person that you were when you were there. I I don't <laughs> see that. No. <laughs> I mean I I mean, first of all, I'm a deeply nostalgic person. Mm -hmm. So I mean that's part of it too. But like you know, you, you, when I used to go to my grandparents' house once or twice a year, that was always an interesting thing for me to go back to this house where like nothing had changed in 50 years because my grandparents mm. lived there. And yeah. the only thing that had really changed for the most part was me. And it was kind of an interesting, uh, experiment in a funny way to sort of recognize what changes had gone on in my life and in myself since the last time I had been there. In addition to just the general sense of trying to keep tabs on, 
where one comes from and their roots in such a crazy situation. What was this, 1982? Mm-hmm. It's been seven years and he's just constantly touring on the road on the cover of Newsweek and Time, what, on the same week? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, and just completely like Beatle-level fame. Uh, I can very much understand the importance of wanting to remind yourself where you come from and at the same time try to almost rationalize those two people the people that you were and the person you are now by going back to sort of the scene of the crime well the other big character in all of this the person that you were and the person that you are is his dad i mean there's a triptych of songs on this record mansion on the hill and used cars and my father's house that are all explicitly about either used cars is about him and his dad and mom going down to the dealership and getting a used car and the chorus of that song is um well, uh, mister, I swear the day my number comes in or the lottery I win, I'm never going to ride in a used car again. Um, and uh, my father's house is about, it's painted as a dream in that, I think. But, I mean, it's based on this habit he was developing around this time. Um, Mansion on the Hill is an actual thing. It, it comes from a, uh, an actual thing that his dad used to do, which is like, I guess, drive him around and be like, look at that nice house (laughs) while we're living in your grandparents' house. Um, In that Rolling Stone interview, it's really funny because he had just purchased a house in Rumson, New Jersey, and Kurt Kurt Loader is like, yeah, so what's your your new house like? And Bruce says, it's the mansion on the hill. So really putting a hat on it. not just not just turning them into metaphorical songs but actually being like no i went and bought the house that my dad told me we could never have uh bruce has also been very open about the fact that he inherited his father's depressive episodes um something that apparently came to a head just as he was finishing these these records he said i was 32 at the time now he's talking to rolling stone in 2016 i had just finished nebraska literally i don't think it was out yet and that was a pretty lonely record it may have struck home But my own biological clock may have been ticking toward that. You carry your baggage, and if you don't start unpacking, your bags get heavier as you move along. Man's got away with words. So at some point, the weight becomes impossible to carry, and you look for some way to unpack those bags. And it can get pretty messy. That's what happened to me. Apparently, he drove from New Jersey to California, where he had bought a house, and then turned around and drove straight back. Um, His Friend and biographer Dave Marsh told The New Yorker in 2012, Bruce was feeling suicidal. The depression wasn't shocking per se. He was on a rocket ride from nothing to something, and now you're getting your ass kissed day and night. You might start to have some inner conflicts about your real self-worth. But- Again, which is why I completely understand revisiting his childhood neighborhood. Yeah. He didn't get on antidepressants until 2012, apparently, uh, which I think also came out around this time uh, in from that interview. But... Um, he uh, he did start seeing a therapist in 1982, and he elaborated on these. He basically tells this well-worn anecdote from a concert around this time that he's when he was in therapy, he was telling his therapist like, "Hey, doc, I'm going to my childhood neighborhood in the middle of the night and just driving around." And he is paraphrasing his therapist. He said, "What you're doing is something bad happened, and you're going back thinking that you can make it right again." Something went wrong, and you keep going back to see if you can fix it or somehow make it right. And Bruce says, he said, I sat there and I said, that is what I'm doing. And his therapist said, well, you can't. (laughs) Real Uh, life. Yeah, exactly. 
That's life, man. Doing the work. I love that. Bruce Springsteen, just in therapy, doing the work. Um, like man. A sp- weird Sopranos offshoot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the other New Jersey therapy show. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors so you pay only what you owe you can even have health lock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills to date health lock has helped its members save over 130 million dollars bottom line insurance alone isn't enough to save visit healthlock.com do it today before you see another health care provider that's healthlock.com I'll tell you one thing, though. If it weren't for how good of a song Nebraska is and the fact that it's the title track, I would argue that this album should start with Atlantic City because it has one of the all-time opening lines. Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. Yeah, they blew up his house, too. (laughs) Tremendous. Atlantic City is, aside from obviously being about the Jersey gambling mecca, uh, which was also at the time, I believe, in a historically low period, It's about the ways in which otherwise good men can turn to the region's organized crime, families say, to make ends meet. 
The unnamed protagonist repeatedly states that he's trying to save money and look for jobs, but ultimately ends up doing the proverbial euphemistic favor for a guy he knows. And this was noted in Mark Richardson's retrospective review of Nebraska in Pitchfork in 2018, but it's interesting how, for all the sinister-seeming characters on this record, there's very little judgment coming from Bruce. And... You know, you see this a lot through fiction. You can almost be a little more honest with yourself. It's like a dream. You know, these characters aren't you. So you can have them say things that are maybe Mm. closer to how you feel or think or things you would want to say. But because they're not explicitly you, you have a little more freedom. And I think that's something that crops up a lot with Paul McCartney, too. A lot of his fiction stuff, when you actually dig just beneath the surface, you see a lot of like things that you can see really kind of come from him. Then Nebraska is this weird blend of memoir and fiction. And Springsteen's talked about his compassion for these characters on Nebraska. He said, quote, you can put together a lot of detail, but unless you pull something up from out of yourself, it's going to lie flat on the page. You've got to find out what you have in common with that character, no matter who they are or what they did. So Nebraska is written with the premise that everybody knows what it's like to be condemned, which they do, of course. Eh, I don't know about that, Bruce, but (laughs) empathy. I love it. Bruce is the only good straight man. <laughs> well, I mean, it. you know, my wife was like, I don't really think this is for me as like not a straight white man. And I was like, yeah, I get that. Well, no, I get that. I get why like women hear his like, like his yarling and there's saxophone and it's like all very just blown out. I'm like, okay, yeah, I get that. But. All of the qualities in which we attempt, in which we like strive to inculcate as an antidote for how shitty men are. You see Bruce working on it, man. Like, you know, he didn't have political awareness, so he read some books. He had some shit he was going through, so he went to therapy. You know, he talks about having empathy for people who are in terrible situations. Like, come on. That's anyway. Philip Charles Testa, the chicken man. He was <laughs> back to the Back to the chicken guy. Uh, He was indeed a real East Coast mobster whose biggest claim to fame was briefly leading the Philadelphia crime family. His nickname came from his involvement in the poultry business uh, as his wife owned a farm in Salem County, New Jersey. Testa succeeded Angelo Bruno, who'd ruled the Philadelphia family for 20 years until he was killed by a shotgun blast to the head as he sat (laughs) every time. Uh, as he sat in his car in front of his house in South Philly in 1980. Bruno's death caused a power vacuum in Philadelphia, sparking a mob war that would last four years and claim the lives of not just Testa, but his son, Salvatore, and 18 other people. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, In 1981, Testa returned to his house in South Philly, and as he was opening the door, a nail bomb exploded under his front porch. This incident happened a little under a year before Bruce's marathon demo session for Nebraska. Fun fact, the song's title, Atlantic City, was originally Fistful of Dollars from the Sergio Leone Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Western, which rules. Uh, So Nebraska comes out. Landau and Bruce are like, no, those are for born in the USA. These are for Nebraska. They settle the mastering debacle, and they put it out, and... The reception was predictably somewhat muted. Um, in uh, it was voted the third best album of 1982 in the uh, influential Village Voice uh, Pazin Job Critics Poll. <laughs> Jordan just made a dismissive gesture. 
Venmo me five bucks and I'll let you know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Rolling Stone voted Nebraska their album of the year, but the record buying and listening public was baffled by this collection of incredibly depressing stripped down songs from their beloved anthemic stadium rocker. As late as 1989, Q Magazine was writing, Nebraska would simply have been a vastly better record with the benefit of the E Street Band and a few months in the studio. He was wrong, Richard Williams. <laughs> Accordingly, only Atlantic City and Open All Night were released as singles from the record, and just in the UK. <laughs> I love that, that they thought this was all alien enough to the UK that they were like, yeah, sell it to them. They don't, it doesn't matter to them. Like I mean, it's kinks. like opening your tour in like Ontario. It's like, all right, well, send it out of town, and if it bombs, then it'll be too far away for. I mean, a record about the decaying auto and manufacturing sector, with references to the East Coast and Middle America, must have seemed about as strange to the British as like the Kinks singing about the Village Green to yeah. us in the '60s. Um, or Delta Blues references did to like Alexis Corner and John Mayall in the London '60s. Yeah. Um, but sandwiched between the river, which went platinum in the UK, double platinum in Canada, three times platinum in Australia, and five times platinum in the US, and born in the USA, which came out after Nebraska, that record went platinum in 11 countries, sold 17 mil in the US alone. It is easy to see how Nebraska was considered a flop. It, I think it only sold a million copies. Yeah, I mean, this was the year of Olivia Newton-John's physical I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett, Human Leagues, Don't You Want Me, and Survivor's Eye of the Tiger. And, I mean, this is the year that John Mellencamp basically out-Bruced Bruce with Jack and Diane. I mean, that sounds like the Bruce Springsteen-style stuff that he was known for. This record didn't sound anything like what was playing on the radio. And it's also interesting to note that Bruce didn't tour behind this record. And I mm. think the only other records that he didn't tour behind were 2019's Western Stars and 2020's Letter to You, yeah. which I feel like both were probably a result of COVID. So, yeah, I mean, his section on Nebraska in his memoir is just a couple pages, and it ends on the phrase, life went on, <laughs> which seems a little dismissive. That's, that's a Neil Youngian level of dismissiveness. Yes, yes. I mean, it didn't sell well. He didn't tour it. And though he'd revisit the stripped-down acoustic format on 1995's The Ghost of Tom Jode and 2005's Devils and Dust, this album would remain something of an anomaly in his catalog. Yeah, and that's that sucks. The <laughs> Jan Wenner profile when he's like, I'd pick Ghost of Tom Jode. That's how you know someone's a narc. If they pick Ghost of Tom Joad over Nebraska, that person is a cop and you need to get out of their car. Do not go with them to a second location. But Nebraska <laughs> has a long reach, casts a long, the proverbial long shadow. As we mentioned earlier, eight of the 12 tracks on Born in the USA came out of the Electric Nebraska section sessions, making that record practically a f an extension of Nebraska rather than the follow-up. Um, then there's the fact that this album has managed to become a literal cross-medium success. Uh, we didn't talk about the song Highway Patrolman, which is one of my favorites on there. Um, it's uh, the story of uh, two brothers, and the chorus is, um, yeah, we're dancing and drinking, nothing feels better than blood on blood, taking turns dancing with Maria while the band plays Night of the Johnstown Flood. So these two guys are growing up in the same town. One of them takes over the family farm, marries Maria. The other guy goes off to, I guess it would have been Korea at that point, because he says Frank came home in 68. Uh, although I guess it could have been Nam, right? 68? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so Korea they, they, ended in like 53, I think. Oh, okay. So definitely not Korea. Yeah. So he says, then wheat prices kept dropping till it was like we was getting robbed. Frank came home in 68 and me, I took this job. So basically, you know, at the end of the song, spoilers, uh, he gets the call to a crime scene and the witness at the crime scene says, this was your brother. And so he tails his brother all the way to the border and lets him go. And it's, you know, just an incredible song. And Sean Penn agrees with me. Thank God. Um, written and directed by Sean Penn, 1991's The Indian Runner is basically a feature-length adaptation of this song, Highway Patrolman. Um, Sean Penn later said that, quote, after 15 to 17 Heinekens, he called Bruce in the middle of the night to ask him his permission to adapt the song. This movie has an insane cast. David Morse from Contact, Jodie Foster's dad and like NYPD Blue and a bunch of other things. Viggo Mortensen, an early role. Benicio Del Toro, Patricia Arquette, Charles Bronson, Dennis Hopper, and Sandy Dennis in her final film role. And making this Southern Gothic thing a complete loop, Harry Cruz, who is one of the other uh, mid-century comic grotesque uh, fiction writers of the American South, he has a cameo in it, and it was shot in Nebraska. Uh, somewhat depressingly, folks, uh, holds hand to my earpiece. <laughs> We're just now learning that Trump advisor and general all-around piece of shit, Steve Bannon was a producer on this film. So stream it. <laughs> don't don't buy it. There's also a 2005 book of short stories, Deliver Me From Nowhere, written by Tennessee Jones, inspired by this record. I know nothing about it, but um, presumably a small press kind of thing. So go support your local author. Um, the band have a great version of Atlantic City on Jericho, which is a record I cannot in good conscience endorse. <laughs> But it's it's a great cover. Garth Hudson is playing uh, accordion on it, and the accordion solo it sounds like if John Coltrane played accordion, it rules. <laughs> and Sub Pop put out an entire record of covers from this and other Bruce period from that time, which is fine. And also Johnny Cash covered not only Johnny 99, but also Highway Patrolman on his 1983 record, Johnny 99. Isn't this like fallow period for cash though? This is like bad, bad cash times. Uh, yeah. I mean, between like dying embers of his seventies success yeah. and then like Rick Rubin. Yeah. Yeah. Despite all that, Bruce still doesn't really revisit these songs that much. I don't know how much of these he would have been doing on the Broadway run when he's just doing all the solo stuff, but the site Bruce base that tracks live performances of his songs has the numbers are not great for stuff off Nebraska. The title track performed only 115 times since its release. Open All Night, 110 performances. My Father's House, 288. Um, Highway Patrolman, State Trooper, and Used Cars, 68, 36, and 38. For Bruce Springsteen's song to only get played 38 times with that man's touring and performing schedule, that's something... He's keeping something locked away. He doesn't want to do that one. <laughs> yeah, contrast uh, that with Born to Run, which has been performed by Bruce Bass's count 1,729 times. Yeah, the, the the two ones that you will see live are the full band arrangement of Atlantic City and Johnny 99. Uh, those are both hovering around nearly 400 live outings. But that's all, you know, that's all aside the point. I think the biggest legacy that this record casts is in the DIY recording community. I mean, 
home recording had existed beforehand. There was the Boston record that Tom Scholes like made in his basement, but that dude had a deg- an engineering degree from MIT. Yeah, from MIT. And if you were like doing home recording and other, you would have had like a two track or, uh, you know, you would have had tape machines, but cassette tapes, Democratic, you can go down to the drugstore and buy them. You know, this four track, you can go out, pick one up, consumer grade for a couple of microphones. You, you could make something that in theory could be as good as what Bruce put out. Many people did not. Hence one of my favorite onion articles of all time, man, just going to grab guitar and old four track, go out to cabin in woods, make the album anyone's ever heard. Um, but you know, that's besides the point. I think anything that as dark and bleak and unrelenting as this record is, it inspired people to make music and it showed people that the barriers to entry that they were maybe imagining were not real. And for a record that's so concerned with people being downtrodden and people being at the end of their rope, it has a legacy as something that democratized music making and songwriting. That's a really beautiful thing. That's a really light side to a very dark record. So I feel good about that. Well said. Yeah. As, uh, as Bruce himself said at the end of the section on his memoir about Nebraska, life went on. Well, folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Hagel. And I'm Jordan Runtalk. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtalk. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtalk and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This message comes from Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.